Hello and welcome to Fringe Legal, your source of snackable bites on innovation, transformation, and knowledge management. Our usual guests for the podcast are technologists or those that tend to have innovation as part of their title. But innovation and transformative ideas also come from within practice. On the episode today, I speak with Adolfo Jimenez, partner at Holland and Knight. Adolfo is a Miami litigation attorney whose practice focuses on international disputes. He leads the firm's South Florida litigation practice group, which consists of more than 80 attorneys, and also leads the firm's international arbitration and litigation team. He handles general commercial litigation matters in federal and state courts. His international experience, language abilities, and management skills provide innovative and comprehensive representations to clients involved in complex cases. Now, a successful practice requires innovation and adjusting to an environment that's constantly changing and transforming. During the episode today, we discuss some of the ways that Adolfo does this in his practice. We talk about the impact of virtualization on the world of arbitration, how he stays up to date with what's happening in his industry in the US, but as he has a very international focus practice, multiple jurisdictions as well. With a team of 80, I also speak to Adolfo around how he supports both members that are slightly newer or perhaps have been with the firm for a while in their growth. And lastly, we talk about the importance of staying client-centric. And a lot of what Adolfo discusses throughout the episode may not come across as the most groundbreaking things, and they don't always need to be. Some of what we discussed today will likely seem quite obvious, but I can tell you common sense doesn't mean common practice in most instances. And that's the key. How do you actually take things that seem obvious in the heat of everything and just make sure that you're continuing to do that? Before we get started, a special thanks to Dale Miller for connecting Adolfo and myself. And please enjoy my conversation with Adolfo Jimenez of Holland and Knight. Welcome to Fringe Legal. It's wonderful to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. So people already heard a little bit about what your role is at Holland and Knight. Would you mind just expanding on that a little bit? What does a, a day in the life of Adolfo look like? On If you were to aggregate your year, what does that look like? No two days are alike. They really vary from day to day. I spend a fair amount of time on I'll call it administrative stuff, whether it's evaluations, working through uh, billing collections issues, or working through different, I'll call them HR issues, and then a lot of client work. And one of the things I strive to do is, is spend as much time on worrying about clients and being focused externally as opposed to internally. I think there's a real uh, risk or threat. Sometimes when you're inundated with administrative issues or problems that you forget what it's all about and it's a client. So I, I really try and dedicate as much time as possible to, to client work, be as responsive as possible. And it, it becomes increasingly you know, more difficult in the virtual world that we're living in currently. And also with the stream of email tend to you know, flood in, but that's the hard part. <laughs> and I imagine that you have a team that supports you as well. How much of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis is 
I guess, managing, leading a team, leading the practice as you do. And I'm always curious as, because I, I would imagine you get probably thousands of emails a day. So how do you actually manage all of that together and just make sure your teams are supported? I really try and prioritize the communications that are coming in and, and uh, try and be responsive. Sometimes I think you've got to be really careful that people don't fail to hear from you. Because that I think you hear so many times from colleagues or from other lawyers, they tell you, you, you never got back to me and that can easily happen. I mean, sometimes it's just a function of keeping track. So a tracking system is important. And number two, just respond even just to let them know I'm checking on it or, yeah. and so it's just those little thing, I think things that I try and keep up with. You get support staff, but increasingly it's, it's firms are expecting you to be self-reliant. There is a big organization behind Holland and Knight that provides a lot of support. A lot of the administrative functions are provided for you, but you, you need to stay involved no matter what. Of course, I'm sure like everyone, your practice and you have been impacted by COVID in some way. For most, it meant that things became more virtualized than they were previously. Courts, arbitrations, just the way that you're working. What's been the impact of that? And has that made the arbitrations more efficient, less efficient, the same? It hasn't changed anything? I think that's a story is still in progress, but it's been transformational. If you look at when the firm and, and most of the world went on lockdown in, in early to mid-March, it was, I think, it came with a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. People thought this would be for a couple of weeks and uh, little did we know it was you know, much, much longer than that. And it, it opened new ways of operating and working that I think most people didn't realize. It, it now seems just commonplace to get on a Zoom call and uh, a video conference, for yeah. example. That wasn't so common back then. We were doing it, but it, it wasn't something that was done with any great frequency. Um, in the arbitration world, you didn't see hearings by video that often. It was starting to happen. Sometimes you'd have witnesses who would appear, but the, the idea of a party or the arbitrators being denied a, a live hearing would seem strange and very alien, at least in the international arbitration world. It, it all of a sudden now you have the possibility of having arbitrators in not just different parts of the world, it'd be on the other side of the world and witnesses appearing from in, in different locations and connecting in a very different way. So it, it's from an efficiency standpoint, it's tremendous. It's a lot of money and a lot of potential savings as far as time and, and, and resources are concerned. I, I still worry that you, you miss out on the connection. If, if you're an arbitrator and you are paying attention or your, or the parties understanding what you're asking. Is it, is it fluid? You're not necessarily next to the other arbitrators. The mode of communication is somewhat different or you can be stunted. In some cases I've heard parties and, and arbitrators say that it's better. I can see the witness directly in front of me. I can follow up. And I think that, that there's some truth to that. It's not linear though. It's a uh, hit or miss. And sometimes you end up with a witness who, even though the, everything was set up to be on a live line and connected, they don't connect and they're connecting with their phone and it's in interrupted. So those glitches occur yeah. and then you're in a situation where, what do you do? Do you basically 
halt the hearing and fix it? Or do you uh, basically discard that witness? It's a very hard choice once you're in it because you don't want to deprive any party of evidence or testimony simply because it's not a, an ideal situation. And th that's the part I think that becomes difficult. How, how do you make it seamless or seamless as possible without really impairing the opportunity for all sides to hear. And yeah. And it sounds like there isn't a one size fit all and you have these efficiencies and the ability, especially in your world to work across jurisdictions and countries and time zones much more easily, but it, you're losing a lot of the nuance that you would get in person, just actually from body language, but also from people's attention and focus. I, I know you and I touched on this when we spoke previously that we're talking right now. I have no idea if you're also checking your email. You have no idea if I'm also checking my email as we're doing this. I think in an arbitration setting, that's particularly the case. Yeah. Sure, you could be in a live arbitration hearing and parties could be on their phones looking at emails, but for the most part, people are paying attention and you could easily sense are, are the parties connected or not. And if you're a participant, you're not distracted. Those distractions, I think, are pervasive in, in any kind of video setting, yeah. uh, whereas they wouldn't be in a live setting. And I, I would imagine, I don't know this, but I would imagine it's probably the same for the judges who are listening in, because that means they have to be, and this doesn't change whether you're live or virtual, but you have to be focused intently for hours. It's just that you now have more competing things for your interest in real life, you're sitting there on the bench and you have people in front of you, you have papers in front of you. It's not like you're going to get distracted and start reading a book, right? In a virtual setting, you do have all these notifications and things coming up. Even if you turn it all off, maybe your phone starts vibrating. Someone's calling you. You're worried now that is this your child? Something's going on. All of these very real scenarios and no one's used to them. And we're still pretty young into, into the world. Do you think, how are the clients behaving? Are, are they quite happy that, well, A, is, I'm presuming it's much faster for them, but are, are they generally quite happy with the situation or they're missing the live situations? It depends. I have clients who are incredulous that we haven't gone back to the office on a regular right. basis because they're back right. and they are wondering why are my attorneys back in the right. office. So there's the, the, some clients are that way. Other clients are, are perfectly fine and, and see the value in either they not getting into a, a vehicle and traveling or getting on a plane and traveling or vice versa. I having to get on a plane or Get in, my car, get in my car and spend time commuting. So that they see the value in that regard. In, in, the, in the courtroom setting, I do see that you miss out on physical, visual cues that occur. So often you're arguing a case and there's a visual cue where the, the judge can see that you want to speak and you don't speak over the other side, but the judge now knows you, you have something that you believe is important. Sometimes the judge will pick up on that and allow you to speak. I find that in video conference setting, it's much more, the, they'll cut you off. They don't see that visual cue or see that the, a reaction from the other side. This is something that's been said. I think that's where I've noticed that you miss out in, in, in arguing cases or being present. It's just, you know, or sometimes the, the other side will say something, the judge looks over to you. And just wants to see your reaction here in, in a zoom hearing, you, 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 
really it's not that that's just not that easy or possible to do i don't find a large part of your world is around international and cross-jurisdiction settings how does that work with uh, i imagine that not all of your witnesses and so on will speak english do you have translators that come on? Do people have live captions as part of Zoom? How does that all work? <laughs> Zoom actually has a, a function that will put the uh, captions. I believe there's also a translation function, but I haven't seen it that much. So we work with simultaneous translators. Right. And so you can have a separate channel that will do a, a simultaneous translation. And it works pretty well. That's a surprisingly, that's the type of situation where all of a sudden you can connect with different countries, different languages, fairly easy. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it works. And that's just the, from that standpoint, it, it, it works. I, I do wonder from there's all this historical, traditional ways of taking an oath or giving an oath, making sure that the party is under the jurisdiction and it's getting sworn in properly. Some of that stuff, I think is being shortchanged. People just aren't worrying as much as to, you know, it's just yeah. properly before the, the court, if you will, it's deposition or properly before an oral hearing. Yeah. And it's an arbitration hearing and, and taking a valid oath. Yeah. And all of those things are, they were set, decided, the guidelines were put into place before all of basically virtualized or telehearings or anything like that became commonplace or even existed. So uh, I think, yeah, the world, world will need to come up to date. Staying with the, the cross-jurisdiction matter, forgive my very limited experience in this, very limited, meaning almost none. It's not very common. Uh, I think people tend to focus on, you know, one jurisdiction at a time in terms of expertise. How are you keeping up to date with not just what's happening in the industry, but also what's happening across different countries in different industries? I'm sure there is a, you know, plethora of information, both very technical or just nuanced. How do you stay up to date with what's going on? You're correct. There, there is a, an abundance of information. It, it's, that's what the internet affords, just a flood of information that's out there that you can tap into. I'm, I'm a believer in attending conferences, not necessarily to generate business, but to, to be informed. It's a good way of uh, connecting with people, both in a formal basis, whether it's in a panel discussion on a particular issue or informally just talking to people. I think in the international arbitration world, it's, I think it's a critical way of staying connected and being informed of knowing what kind of issues are out there, different practitioners speaking about different types of cases. So the way there's been a growing number of professional publications in involving international arbitration, whether it's investor state disputes or commercial international arbitrations in both areas, there's a fair amount of just regular written communications. There are journals, another solid source are, are universities. There's, there are a number of universities and in, in my case in Miami, but also in New York, Washington, that spend a lot of um, time covering international arbitration issues academically, but also from a practical standpoint, there is a, a pretty good. Uh, alliance, I would say, between practitioners, arbitrators, and university and law schools. They work hand in hand. And so it, it becomes a, a great source of information, knowledge, and thinking about what's new and how to address disputes. It's, those are key sources. And one of the, what I find rich about it is connecting with lawyers and different arbitrators and practitioners from all over the world. They just, they give you a different sense or taste of what 
what is happening, what are the, the key issues. And they each have some similarities as far as might be because they're dealing with the exact same industries or they might be dealing with the same kind of restrictions from you know, legal restrictions in their countries as far as the, you know, the applicable laws that they're going to utilize as far as enforcement of arbitrations in their own jurisdictions. One of the things that you said, uh, which caught my attention is, so this alliance between university, law schools, and the professionals, when I speak to both law firms and to students, both of them complain about the same thing, which is going through law school, they don't feel they are adequately prepared for the practical lawyering, if I can call it that. They learn a lot of theory. Uh, they, they do learn a lot of skills and are undermining law schools in any way, but practicalities of being in a law firm particularly is very different to what they go through. Because of this alliance, are you finding that generally those that are coming into the legal profession with the hopes of being into, in litigation or arbitration, they're more prepared as to what the realities of that practical life is like, or are there still rosy eyes? and expecting some amazing thing, but it's very different. I would say the latter. <laughs> yeah. on, on the international arbitration side, there, there is a different experience that you tend to, to see. A, a lot of the lawyers that go into, or, or law students that go into international arbitration, they, they might've worked, been part of an LLM program that's for specifically international arbitration and you have a lot of law students from different parts of the world in a relatively small group. It might be 40, 80 students. It might be a hundred and different schools have different statistics. The, with the regular law students, the JDs who might've taken a few courses, yeah. they've been exposed to it. They find it, I'll say sexy. They, some of the attraction might be, I want to see the world. I'd love to go to Paris and the two week arbitration hearing or Dubai wouldn't be bad either. I can, yeah. I think sometimes they, depending on what their, their, the expectations are, it could be really positive, really negative. If you're involved in the, all the, the more attractive cases, they tend to be very large. And that's true both on regular commercial litigation or international arbitration. And in those cases, the experience you're going to receive might be very specialized. It wouldn't necessarily expose you to a lot of variety experiences. So you might be working on a research issue that's critical on a motion to dismiss, or you might be working on a, an initial brief in an arbitration. And it's the cases are so large that you're not having client interaction. Right. You're not speaking with the client that with different witnesses, you're not learning how to take depositions or how to interview witnesses, it, it could be stunting after two or three years. So you're not getting exposure. I, I think it's, I've seen lawyers get frustrated. Hmm. They feel like I'm not developing it. So that's important I think, to uh, get a variety of different types of experiences and cases and maybe work on smaller matters where you're seeing a, a matter all the way through. You're actually closer to client experience. Developing strategy, maybe being present during uh, some of the client meetings. And that is enriching. That gives them a, an idea as to why am I researching this issue and why is it so important? It, it gives them a fuller picture yeah. of the dispute. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's always going to be pros and cons to 
being part of the big sexy case or this sort of small matter potentially where you get the full life cycle for sure. How do you, and then one, one more question on this, I want to move on to a different topic if you're open to it, but how do you make sure that as you're getting these younger members or the newer members of the firm joining, uh, who are probably much more accustomed to technology just from day-to-day life, right? There's this bleed of commercial technology into the world of professional. How are you keeping them motivated? How do you make sure that they're engaged? And I asked this, and Holland and Knight, I'm sure is up there in what your capabilities are in the IT technology front, but as a whole, the legal profession is behind <laughs> certainly our day-to-day lives. I, I don't think there's too much dispute there. So how do you make sure people are engaged and they're getting used to Word for the very first time? I'm sure a lot of them coming from the world of Google Drive and Google Documents. How do you make sure that they aren't frustrated from the get-go? I've had a lot of discussions with our partners and other lawyers about the difference between now and then. And the, the premise always seems to be Lawyers today are so spoiled. When I was, when I was their age, I was. Right. And I find that it's, in some ways we had it better. And some older attorneys don't always agree. Generally don't agree with me. I find that the, back then it was much more commonplace for somebody to take you aside and spend 10 minutes going through a memo or spending time off the books, if you will, and. The billing pressures today are tremendous and the, 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 the expectations of clients to get stuff turned around right. is severe. That, that comes, I think, with technology. The, the turnaround has to be fast. What I try and do is take some time and it, it's costly because it means maybe I have to stay a little bit later working, but I find that's uh, different. That's special and, and it, the younger attorneys appreciate it. The, I just find younger attorneys too often they're deprived of, I won't just say feedback, but just some kind of stray comment that can be enriching for them or, or sometimes we deprive ourselves of their input because we don't take the time to, to sit down and just have an informal talk. That type of interaction is less common and, and more difficult. And it's more difficult under the current conditions if you're working through in a remote setting, that informal type of discussion uh, that you have. And it's difficult to, to have on a regular basis, but I think it's extremely important. I try and do that with lawyers, especially when they're joining after a while, after a few months, sometimes I get the feeling like they don't know why I'm calling and they're kind of uh, weirded out (laughs) by the, the, the sense of like, why are you calling me? Or it's just unexpected, but. I, I, I learned a great deal about our firm, about what people are going through just by having those kinds of informal chats. And I, I try and have them just with no motivation other than just to say hello or, or to learn from. Yeah. I, I love that. And look, I've spoken to, I don't know, over a hundred, maybe two, 300 partners by now. Very few have that viewpoint and that mindset. And I understand all of the pressures. And as you said, quite rightly, there is, yes, of course, there's more for less and all of this kind of stuff, but just the expectation of how quickly things need to be turned around. Usually, usually in a lot of firms, the only true relationship between the partner and a junior is we need to get this done yesterday. 
right? That's pretty much it. And you don't get feedback. You don't do that. And it is that investment in time on your part, even though it's costly, to make sure that actually in three months time, they're going to be a much more productive part of your team. They'll be much more valuable to the firm, to the client. They'll just add a lot more value and actually treating them like a human being and just helping them grow. Because especially if you're brand new to the legal profession, you don't know, you feel so lost, right? It's like joining a new job is difficult, but joining a brand new industry where this may be your very first job, yeah, it's really difficult. And I think a lot of the times people forget because a lot of partners, no offense, haven't been there for a long time. They don't have that beginner viewpoint anymore, what it felt like being very first day, week or month in, in practice. I, I agree. Partners are under a uh, tremendous pressure. Yeah. But but the, the one thing I, I try and reinforce on in younger attorneys is to think long-term. Mm. The, the, too often where they're focused on what my bonus is going to be. And the bonus will be a function of how many hours they, they bill and how much was actually collected. And they forget that sometimes a doing a pro bono matter where you're getting valuable skills or being exposed to particular judges that has tremendous value and, and you're going to learn a great deal. I had learned so often, one of the things I found on, if you will, in, in my practices is unless you're working together with other attorneys in your office closely, you really don't are, are unable to learn a great deal from them. Obviously there's a culture that's built that's important, but I've learned a whole lot from opposing counsel, just that interaction with opposing counsel, how they operate the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, but it's been valuable. I've seen some great lawyers on the other side who I know have made me better. And I've seen some lawyers who've done things that are, are shocking and you <laughs> make you wonder, but it's, it's just that kind of exposure where you're getting written work product from the other side, or you're getting to see them argue cases or see them in a trial or in a hearing. That's a, that's very valuable. And too often young associates are, or they want to do great work, but they're only concerned about the bonus or the, yeah. what their compensation is going to be and, and forget that three years, five years is not really that long a period of time. Too often they're just thinking about this year or this month. So I push a lot to, to think, don't think short term. And so the cases you're getting or the experience you're gaining are, are just as valid. Yep, absolutely. They're all learning opportunities. And thinking long-term, what does the future of the profession look like from your viewpoint? And you can pick any time period you like. Is it going to be, and perhaps the way to think about it is, if I'm coming to you as a client in three, five, seven, ten 10 years time, it's my experience going to be vastly different than it is today, or does nothing change? I think it's going to be vastly different, but I've got to say that I remember 30 years ago hearing of how much things were going to change, that the billable hours going to disappear or that the, all these things that you were predicted back then, and, and they really haven't, it, it, there hasn't, um, but I think that there has been change. If you, if you look back, having a computer on your desk was transformational. I think the period that we've just been through, mostly because of COVID and different ways of working or transformational and technology is transformational. And, and I've seen it just in the last few years where, you know, all of a sudden now it's, this has been a, a current thing where a concern recently raised about, are our associates getting adequate experience reviewing documents? Because too often now it's being outsourced. 
or it's being done by computers, document reviews. Do they know how to go through a box of documents and pick out important uh, things or important information? That's, I never thought I would have ever heard that. That's a concern that we need to make sure that they, they're able to analyze documents, figure out how they might support or be an issue in the case. I mean, those are things are, I think technology is having a, a major effect. I see clients are relying on analytics like never before and, and really grading lawyers and law firms through analytics like never before. There's more and more analysis of judges or lawyers. So the information is just, it's overwhelming. It's just a tremendous amount of information. And then it's, I guess it's also what you do with it. How do you use it? How valuable is it? Or are you going to make decisions based on some snapshot that you're getting that may or may not be true today, for example. So I think it's, that's going to change the, 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 what, the way clients behave, the way we operate. We've got to make use of all those resources. I, I'm a believer though, that the, the, the profession is based on on trust. And there's a, an idea that you're providing legal advice. That's what this is all about. And somebody comes to you to help them accomplish something, whether it's a transaction or, you know, defend them in a, in a litigation or pursue a claim that they, they might be entitled to. And there's something called the attorney client privilege, which is all designed to promote communication. And I think the role of an attorney has to be kept in mind when you're going through all this, where you're there to provide the, the right structure, the right way of doing something. And it's based on obtaining as much as you can and, and knowing as much as you can about your client and what the, the needs are. And that requires a, a fair amount of knowledge and communication. It might come about because you've worked with that particular client for a long time, but oftentimes it's just spending you know, quality time with that client and getting to know their business, getting to know their industry. That, that can't be lost and that can't necessarily be assumed because you then run certain risk. It's also a way of reaching decisions in a, in a matter or a legal relationship that's based on that kind of open and free communication. So the open and free communication, I think, is the, the value that lawyers bring to, to any engagement. And retaining that is critical. And I think the, the, the great lawyers will always depend on that. And I think clients, uh, will continue to value that. That is, that's great. And I think uh, that's probably a great place to wrap up. Actually, before we do, if you, if I can take you back to whenever you first started practicing 15, 20, 30 years ago, what's been, what's been one of the biggest or maybe the most impactful change for you on how you practice then? to now, and I know you mentioned just having computers and having access, but is something so shocking to you where you think back, I can't believe I used to do that, or we used to do that as a profession. Has anything drastic like that changed? And I, I don't know, and that's what I'm asking. I, I have no idea what used to happen 30 years ago. I don't know, we, we previously discussed this, but just the documents just gotten so, so large. I think that's been a, a big change, it's just, Briefs have become longer, motions have become longer. And I think it's so often you find that the shorter brief is just as strong or effective and you can say more, you can be more, a more effective advocate if you, if you 
are able to synthesize what you're trying to say and, and present it in a very strong, you know, curt or short presentation. So often I tell associates that the U.S. Supreme Court case is enough and that usually wins the day. I don't need to canvas all those different circuits and get <laughs> cases from them. Your circuit might, might be enough. It, it, you don't have to go that far. And I think sometimes it's just ruling that. But to, to, to address the, the question that you raised is, has anything changed and, and changed for the better is, is what I'm I think communication, it's, it, it makes it more difficult, I think, for lawyers. But now it's just the, the constant communication has been different. It used to be that you would send a, a status letter every so often and that was it. And you would have a call every once in a while. But now it's pretty constant with emails and back and forth. And it's clients more involved than they used to be. And it, they probably should, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. They're more, yeah, uh, they have a closer tie to the matters that I'm working on than they used to have. Cause it's easy. It's much, much easier than it used to be. It yeah. didn't, it, it's not a function of sending fax, which you, know, you can never send it yeah. 73 fax. You could, but you could get 30 looks, but it's, I think that's been different and, and it's been a good thing. Clients are now understanding how a case progresses. They're involved in developing strategy more than they used to be. That's good. What I hope doesn't change is I'm, I'm a big believer that you need to have a sit down every once in a while, whether it's once a quarter or at least once a year uh, on matters just to, so that everybody can have a good strategy discussion regarding the matter and, and understanding regarding the matter. And sometimes that's hard to do because again, everybody's so busy and it's hard to, but I, that's the one thing I, I like to do is just have. Uh, a good session that's not necessarily on the clock, just, and then whether it's via a lunch or in a conference room for an entire day, those sessions are extremely valuable because you get insight into what the client is concerned with things, how the matters change or how the conditions change. And that's oftentimes the case. It's just nothing static. So you, you have to keep abreast of what's really concerning your, whether it's an in-house cl client by in-house counsel or a client whose circumstances may are different than they were a year or two ago. Yeah. And I think I'm going to wrap all of those things up into being client centric. And I agree with you. I think hopefully that continues and having clients involved in matters relating to them seems like a no brainer. And I'm glad that it's increased, but to your point about the length of documents, the complexity of documents, I agree. But I think that again, goes down to client centricity before, because A, someone had to write it by hand or type it or something. You had a physical representation of how long and complex this thing was becoming, which meant that you had in your mind, okay, maybe this is getting too complex to actually be able to be understandable by whoever is involved. We're maybe going too far away from the problem we're trying to solve, but now we have unlimited canvas to do whatever we want. And you have schedules and appendices and for you have a thousand page document just to agree a meeting. And yeah, it, you know, perhaps that's gone a bit too far the other way. No question. It's not uncommon to see a, a dispute over a 600 page contract yeah. where the only thing that's really at issue are, you know, two provisions that we didn't seem to add anything. And you have to wonder, 
could this have happened because they were working in such a you know large document that was so hard to manage it's just the the tendency of more is good and more is better and that's not always the case so that's it for the episode today i hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as i did recording it if you like this episode, then you'll love the French Legal Newsletter. Each weekly issue includes snackable bites on innovation, transformation, and knowledge management. You can subscribe for absolutely no cost at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. The show was produced for French Legal by yours truly, Abhijat Saraswat, with special thanks to Adolfo Jimenez for his time and a wonderful conversation. Until next time, stay well. <laughs>